Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Russell. I am a teaching pastor here at Church of the City, and this morning, um, as Rhea said, as she welcomed us, and as Claire uh, joined in that, I mean, I'm sure she's fully on board with this, it's really good to be together, um, genuinely. Um, good to be in the same space with other people, trying to figure out the way of Jesus, as we just do our absolute best to figure out who God is, what God is up to, who we are, and how when the two intersect, uh, how that changes the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act, and all of it. So thank you. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. We are coming to the conclusion of a series that we at Church of the City are committed to spending a um, significant amount of time in the scriptures. And the reason for that is because we, we have a sense that the work and activity and voice of God as it intersects real human life is important for us. And, and as far as an access point goes uh, to understanding how life as a human being intersects the way of God, we don't really have anything better than this. And more than that, not just that it's a default, but there is such richness to the, the storylines of the people who are doing what we're doing today, trying to figure all of this out. Now, we are concluding uh, the end of a journey through the storyline of a woman and a few people around her by the name of Ruth. Uh, and if you've been with us on the journey, um, man, I'm so grateful that we embarked on this together. If this is your first time with us, that's okay, um, because we're going to get a bit of a glimpse of everything going on here. And I'll just say this before we continue on with Ruth and its conclusion. Next week, we're going to be shifting gears. Um, and in some way, it feels like a shift. In other ways, it feels like um, it is quite natural. We'll be moving back into um, the New Testament, um, into the story of Jesus, as told by one of the people who set out to discover who Jesus is, a man by the name of Luke. And so next week, we'll start a journey there as we just lean further into the way of Jesus. And it feels like a departure because we've been about 1,200 years prior in human history with Ruth and the life of Jesus. And yet what we see and what we've discovered in Ruth is an incredible picture of Christ. In fact, I've, I've said this um, a couple times through this, and I, I've said it kind of softly as I've processed it myself, um, but I'll say it a bit more firmly this morning. I can think of no better example of Messiah of Christ, of God in flesh and bones in the Old Testament than Ruth. At this point, um, and I'll definitely be wide open to if you have other ideas of someone else who better resembles a picture of what Jesus is, of what the Christ is, I'm totally open to it. And this isn't like a category where you have to say like, yep, well, this person ranks here, and the next person ranks here, and on and on and on, on. I just think we have such an incredible picture of who Jesus is in the storyline of this person. Now, we entitled this whole series um, kind of in a novel way. Sarah, uh, my teaching partner, came up with this idea. Um, because in the storyline, Ruth is attached to her mother-in-law, a woman by the name of Naomi. And if you recall, uh, Naomi does change her name. We'll get that in just a second. Um, she changes her name because the circumstances of her life turn completely upside down. And she gets a sense that God has completely abandoned her, and it drives her towards feeling extremely bitter. And it's at this point that in the storyline, when Naomi's world is upside down and so is Ruth's life, her, her life's upside down, that Ruth makes a decision to, to follow Naomi wherever she goes. And we have this monumental passage we, we use quite often inside of Christianity, talking about wherever you go, I'll go. Uh, whoever you, wherever uh, you go, I'll follow. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, etc., it's a decision on Ruth's part to follow Naomi. 
But she follows Naomi in an informed kind of way. She knows that Naomi is struggling, that she's bitter. And so this concept um, that comes out of the storyline is that the activity of Ruth, her story, is not a fanciful, romantic story. It's a story where she's well informed that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, and yet she persists. And yet she carries on. And she follows a woman who changes her name to bitterness. She chooses a hard road. A road that's not predictable. A road that's not safe. A road that welcomes vulnerability. But a road nonetheless that gives her the opportunity to love another person really, really well. Now our story at end here, as it kind of concludes our particular part of it this morning, begins with a conversation among the women around Ruth and Naomi. And this is the second time that this has happened in this piece of literature. The first time this happened, if you recall, is after Ruth and Naomi return from Moab. If you don't know the story, Ruth is uh, Naomi's daughter-in-law. And she's not uh, a Hebrew. She's a Moabite. She's from another place. And the, re- the way that all went down was pretty tragic in and of itself. Naomi left with her husband and fled um, Israel, fled Palestine because of a famine, went to Moab. They were refugees there. They married off two of their sons to Moabite women, and then all the men in the family died, father and sons, leaving a mother-in-law and two daughters-in-law across ethnic lines over international borders. They return, Ruth and Naomi, from Moab to Israel, to a place that you're probably familiar with called Bethlehem the home of Jesus, one of, the place where he was born, where his people are from. And as they return, the women in Bethlehem are, are kind of caught out by the whole thing, and they start talking. And they start talking with one another about, is this the long-lost Naomi? Now, at this point, again, there's, there's like very little communication across these international lines. We're talking 100 miles in distance between where um, Bethlehem is and where they were at Moab but we also have a gap of at least 10 years. Communication has broken down. Communication at this point uh, is, is questionable, and the women in the small um, agrarian shepherding village of Bethlehem have no idea what happened to Naomi. So when she returns, certainly she's older than she was. She's probably more tired than she was. She's gone through a huge amount of tragedy. She's aged, and the world has not been kind to her. And they ask the question, could this be? Could this be Naomi, the, the woman that we that we have wondered about for so long. We don't know what happened to her. And so at that point, when, when Naomi hears them asking, is this Naomi? That she responds and tells these women her story. And she does it in a really unique way. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And she, with this identity, with this name, she encapsulates her story in the kind of way that the other women could understand. This point in human history in the ancient Near East, and it's still common today in our world, we do a little bit of this, but not quite to this extent. The same word in Hebrew, and this carries on into the Hellenistic tradition, the, the Greek and Roman world, the same word for name is used for reputation. The ideas were synonymous. In in the world of the ancient Near East, your identity is wrapped up in, in your name, your reputation, who you are. 
And so if someone were bold enough to say, I am no longer what I once was, I am now something different. And if they were bold enough to change their name to something else, it was a marker that the society at large understood. It would be rare and irregular. It probably was awkward. The women didn't probably want to receive it. In fact, they kind of pushed back on it in this initial interaction when Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. And nonetheless, Naomi says, this is my reputation now. This is my name. And as the stories progress, as you remember, the two of them fumble their way forward in Bethlehem. Ruth goes and she gleans at the edge of fields, which is like the lowest rung of social welfare. It's only one rung above panhandling and asking people just to be generous out of the kindness of their heart. And she's greeted by a wealthy landowner, a man by the name of Boaz, who recognizes that she's a vulnerable woman and he's heard her story. He's heard that she has taken good care of her mother-in-law. And because of it, he gives her some protection. He takes his power, his privilege, his prominence as a landowner and as a man, and he extends it to this woman who's a foreigner, a woman, and poor, and gives her space, gives her protection, gives her extra food. From that moment, Naomi recognizes something's different here. Something's different about the situation. She knows who the man is. She's part of the extended family. We talked about this last week. The extended family of her dead husband. And there's ritual law about what must happen in order for a woman to be taken care of in the ancient Near East under the authority of a man. And the law gave space for somebody to take the responsibility on themselves within the family for any widow and any land that was left over from the deceased male. So Naomi gets a brainwave, says, let's, let's see what we can do here. She coaches her daughter-in-law, go present yourself to Boaz in the middle of the night after he's had too much to eat and too much to drink and he's at the end of his day. Uncover his feet after you've put on your best clothes, after you put your perfume on, and navigate this broken, tragic system of the patriarchy. Present your body in the most vulnerable kind of way and see what happens. See if we can't figure out a way for us to find protection under Boaz. And if you recall, when she does it, he's caught out by it. In the middle of the night, he's woken up, startled by her, asks in the middle of the night, pitch black, who are you? And she says her name, and he identifies, he remembers who she is. And he says, you have taken such good care of your mother-in-law. I'm going to take good care of you. He doesn't sleep that night. He goes right to the town gate, and he goes through the transaction in order to redeem not just the land owned by the deceased, but all the people of the household who are held in this queue of property ownership, including Ruth. Now we're at this point. If you want to go back and listen to last week, it was, it's a pretty powerful set of um, movements that occur that get us to where we are today in the passage. It's powerful because we have in Boaz someone who's acting completely out of the social normals of his day. And it's unique because what we don't have is we don't have a hero story about Boaz. We don't have a book in the Bible named the book of Boaz. We don't have a, a hero coming out of the story who's venerated generation after generation after generation for what he's done. What we do have is we have a book 
entitled Ruth. With a heroist, a heroine, heroine? That sounds wrong. That can't be right. It is right? Hero, heroine. That's better. I'll make it a long E. Heroine. A woman who's a hero. Who generation after generation is venerated. And here at the conclusion, here at the, the, the last section of this writing, we get a glimpse of the power struggle occurring in the story. And the reason I set this up is because as we approach this particular section again, we get insight into what's going on through the conversation of the women in town who approach Naomi and start articulating their perspective. So at this point, we've seen Boaz redeem the land of Elimelech, the man who died in Moab, who left a widow named Naomi and a couple daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. We've seen him redeem not just the land, but also the household. And he's now married to his new wife, Ruth. And as we approach this section, what I want you to listen for is I want you to listen for the tension and the struggle for how to define the story. Because in this language, in this interaction, we can feel, we can see, we can hear what's going on in the minds of the everyday observer the everyday woman who's observing what's gone on in the story as they try to make sense of all of the moving parts. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. We are in Ruth chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible like we do every week, I've got it for you on the screen. You're welcome to follow along there or flip open your phone, whatever is easiest for you. So here we are. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, a key in here, the women said to Naomi, she's the mother-in-law, she's not Ruth, she's the widow of Elimelech, she's the one who is Hebrew, who grew up in and around Bethlehem, and they know her, and this is what they say to her, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer pointing towards Boaz. May he become famous through Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Let's stop here for a second. We need to unpack a few things before we move on. This interaction is beautiful because it is completely unguarded. It's completely sincere, and it is completely illuminating of the tension of the whole story of Ruth, the tug of war inside of the whole interaction between all these people. One of the things that's been established in this whole storyline is that the situation that these people find themselves in is more demanding than we initially expect. The storyline of Ruth is often portrayed as a romantic story that ends with a beautiful baby being born. The issue is, to get to the point where a baby is born, humans, adults, had to go through something that was extremely painful, and not just one time, but repeatedly, not just held by one person, but by everybody in the story. We have Naomi losing her husband, and then her sons. Just take that on its own, to become a widow and to lose your boys, to be the last one in your family alive, wild tragedy. Then, to make a decision to give up on life, to go back to your, home, your homeland and die there. 
another hugely difficult decision to make. And then Ruth. She also lost her husband and her father-in-law and her brother-in-law, all within relative proximity of time, dealing with her own pain, her own loss, her own trauma, makes a decision to leave behind her home country, Moab, in order to love her mother-in-law, Naomi, to go on a road that would inevitably make her more vulnerable if she chose to go with her mother-in-law than if she stayed. She could have gone back to her dad. She could have gone back to her family and probably remarried and probably been taken care of that way. And she gave that up. When they return to Israel, Naomi is unmotivated. She is bitter. She is stuck. It's Ruth who says, I will go work and work hard in another vulnerable position in order to take care of us. Going to the edges of the fields of the day laborers as a woman, as a foreigner, as someone who's poor, made her extremely vulnerable. In fact, twice it is said that it's expected that she would be raped. It's said by Naomi and it's said by Boaz. They understand what goes on in that particular situation. And then if it doesn't, if it can't get any worse than that, because a powerful man enters a storyline, the assumption is that man will want to take advantage of her. And both women know it and they navigate the story in a way to say, well, we can't fix that part of this situation. It's so broken, but we need help. So a mother-in-law sends her daughter-in-law into a situation that could have turned into even more pain and more tragedy. The whole story is defined by pain. It is the story. It is the reality of being human. And as we talked about last week, the point of this, what we're wrestling with inside of Esther, or sorry, sorry inside of Ruth, is that things are more broken than we think they are. It is so difficult to see into the narratives of the scriptures, Old Testament or New, and actually empathize with the people who are dealing with these situations because they feel so far removed from us. I mean, this is 3,200 years in the past or thereabouts. It's so easy to gloss it up and turn it into a nice, trite, simple Sunday school story. When in reality, it's anything but that. The story is a story of pain. It's a story of people going through difficult situations. But it's also the story of hope. It's a story of people hoping for something better in the middle of things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. It's a story of people moving towards something that obviously is pulling them for their attention and their time. That would be something that would motivate Ruth to make herself more vulnerable is something like hope. She had hope for her mother-in-law that things could get better. And if she was a part of it, if she was a part of her mother-in-law's life continually, she went back to Israel, that things could get better. There's hope in Ruth as she goes to the field and makes herself vulnerable and gleans at the edges that maybe something will change, maybe something will break and we'll get our opportunity. It's hope that drives Naomi to put her daughter-in-law into another vulnerable situation that maybe, just maybe, something better than the worst will happen. And it's this tug-of-war between brokenness and hope that's illuminated in these women's statement. As we've said repeatedly, this particular situation, the storyline, the, the, the social and economic situation driving the ancient Near East 3,200 years ago is defined by the patriarchy, meaning 
is defined by a male-oriented society. Everything is driven around the identity of men in this particular moment. And one of the things we've been very clear about that we've been trying repeatedly to make sure is clear from this is that the patriarchy is not God's best. It is not portrayed here as the way that we ought to proceed forward as humans. And I've compared it with several different things, but the one that seems to come the most powerfully to mind is we find all sorts of things in the scriptures that God is saying, this isn't my best, and yet it still remains as a part of the social fabric. Take, for instance, polygamy. Strong, well-defined, even heroic men in the Old Testament had multiple wives, concubines, slaves, had affairs, raped people. God is not saying that is my best for people. And yet through it, what we discover and find is that the story continues to go forward. That God doesn't obliterate people for not doing the absolute best. But God enters into the story and does the absolute best to redeem it with something better than its brokenness. We need to be very clear on this point. God is not legislating the patriarchy. He's not saying to all people of all times, society is driven by one chromosome being superior to another. What we have is the inability to change, in many cases, the social fabric of what's going on. And these women, they can feel it. They can, they can feel the tension. If you hear their voices, as they, they become aware that Ruth has now married Boaz, they've had a child, and as they try to make sense of it all, they go to their friend Naomi, and they say, man, this is such a good thing. What a blessing this is. This is how this story has worked out. And they lean towards the hope of it all, the goodness of it all. And then they say, blessed is Boaz. May he be famous in all of Israel. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, to be honest with you. He plays a very important role in this, not to minimize who Boaz is or what Boaz is. But it's interesting to me that we've seen Boaz at two different intervals default not to being the superior man in the story, but to taking his cues from Ruth. If you remember back in the field when they first meet, he tells her, I've heard of your story, and that's why he chooses to take care of her. Not because she's so destitute and so broken, but because she has acted with such love and protection for her mother-in-law. Boaz recognizes it and responds in kind. He's taking his cues from her. And then again, in the middle of the night, when he could have taken advantage of her, when no one would have known, he could have done anything he wanted with her, up until the point of murdering her and getting rid of her, if he wanted to. When he notices it's her, he's again verbally saying, I know what you did for your mother-in-law. I can't harm you. I'm going to do this the right way. He's taking his cues from her. What we see is a complete shattering, a complete inversion of everything normal. Yet the women who are observing this, their, their impulse, their knee-jerk reaction is, man, how great is that Boaz? He's so great, he's going to be famous in all of Israel, ongoingly, into the future. 
Now, granted, he has a, a role. He has a place. He finds his name in Scripture. That's a big deal. But I point you towards, again, this is not the book of Boaz. This is not the book of the hero who makes everything right and redeems all things because he's part of the patriarchy. It's a man who actually works inside of the same broken system, but instead of taking his cues from that system, looks towards someone who looks an awful lot more like the way of humanity as he conceives it, as it ought to be. And that's Ruth. He takes his cues from a woman, from a foreigner, someone who's not even Hebrew, someone who's poor and impoverished, and he recognizes something substantive about what she's doing, the way she's doing it. And it shifts in him something good. Now, as we pointed out last week, there's more going on in the life of Boaz. If you recall, he is the son of a prostitute, a woman by the name of Rahab, who lived in a place called Jericho, who protected the spies of Israel. He's been influenced for more than just one moment in his life to act the way he's acting in this narrative. Strong women, women who defy the normal social fabric, have shown him and demonstrated to him what it means, what it could mean to be a man in light of this particular scenario. Now let me stop here and just dwell on this for a moment in our time and our space. There's a term that's being thrown around you may have heard, you may have cringed at, I don't really care what your feelings are towards it, but it's a, it's a term that has been, um, has been on the rise as far as understanding what's happening in our day and age when it comes to being male, being a man. The term is toxic masculinity. Have you heard that term before? Toxic masculinity. Now, I don't think that that is necessarily what's coming out of this passage but I think it's pointing us towards something going on in our culture in our time. In many cases, we would say we're well beyond the day and age of the, of the uh, what is it, 12th century uh, BC. That we aren't acting the way they did in the ancient Near East. We are more enlightened. We understand the value of people more than ever before. We could look at the opposite gender and we could say there's value there. And maybe even mutuality, maybe even equity, maybe even parity. And yet, our culture still has, if not the after effects, the full-blown force of defining what it means to be a man around some pretty toxic ideas. Ideas like superiority, if you're a man. Ideas like if you are male, you must define your maleness by your overbearing, hostile, sometimes angry, but certainly in control personality. You've got to like guns and fishing and football. You must be defined as the guy who's always in control. Now, nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with liking a gun or fishing or liking football. Toxic masculinity, as defined in our culture today, is masculinity, maleness, that harms or takes advantage of other people. And oftentimes it's made synonymous with some of these features. 
where we must be the most powerful person in the room. We must be the, the person that everyone looks up to. We must be more powerful and make sure everyone around us knows that we're more powerful. We're smarter, we're faster, we're stronger. But we see in Boaz something altogether different. What we see in him is this example of a human being who doesn't have to be defined by the social normal of his day. He sees an opportunity and he takes it. To take his cues from the most unassuming human in his life. He isn't defined by the normal patriarchy. He's wealthy. He's a landowner. He's privileged. He's a man. He has everything going for him. And yet, what we see in him is an example of someone who isn't defined by the normal social cues that would make him a man in his day. Now here's my point to all this. Growing up in the church, I never heard anybody say, there are more than one way to be a man following Jesus. Toxic masculinity has found its way into the American church as well. Whereas outside of the church, oftentimes it's driven by sexuality. I was sitting in my barbershop the other day. There's an old poster on the wall because barbershops are kind of throwback places anyway. And it's probably from the 50s or 60s. And it was an advertisement for this pomade. And the line was something to the effect of, there's a beautiful woman in a, in a swimsuit next to a man in a business suit. And the, the, the line under it is from her voice saying, any man who wears that pomade never has to ask me twice. So we, we take that in American Christianity and we make it a bit more wholesome. But we're still a part of this. We're told that if you want to be a man and follow Jesus, you still have to go hunting on the weekend. So to go to the retreat that's going to define you by football, by your strength, by your aggression, we're still told that this is the only way to be male inside of what we call the community of God. And I simply want to point at Boaz as an example, and I would argue a much more demanding scenario who says and demonstrates that is not the only way to define what it means to be a man following God. What we see is a person who defies the normals and chooses to respect other people, to not take advantage of them, to not be overbearing and overwhelming, to defer his power, to defer his decision-making process to someone of the opposite gender, with no power, with no control, and be able to go down in human history famously, not for being the hero of the story, before responding to the hero of the story. And it's striking that the women in the story, they're wrestling with this, right? Their first impulse. Famous will he be for all of Israel, for all of time. How amazing. But then it's like instantly they switch gears. And their, their minds are drawn towards Naomi. And everything she's lost. And now that she you know, has this new son-in-law and they have a child and she's a grandmother and things are kind of coming back together for her, They've looked to Ruth. And their impulse there is, wow, may Boaz be famous in all Israel, but Ruth, she is better than seven sons. Can you feel the tension in what they're saying in the same like small paragraph? 
man, we're so dependent on the patriarchy and on men and men doing something, and we're grateful for that, and God used this man Boaz, and may he be famous in Israel, and yet we can see the person who stands out in relief as a hero of the story. It's Ruth. But she's taken better care of a woman who she had no obligation to take care of than seven sons. We can feel in the storyline is the tension of power and the tension of what to do with that power. The tension how to appreciate how others deal with power. How power struggle invariably comes into view when we have people who are different than one another. And what to make of it when the power structure is completely inverted and turned on its head. What I love about these women, what I love about their situation, what I love about what they say here in the scripture, is they're speaking a lot of what my heart feels when it comes to these kinds of ideas. I don't know a perfect pathway forward when it comes to gender roles, inside or outside of the church. And it goes a step beyond because ancient Near East is defined by two genders. We live in a world where that's not the case right now. There's gender fluidity. And we're wrestling with what it means to be one gender or another. To appreciate other people who are dealing and struggling with their mind, not agreeing with their body. And what to make of that. How to define it. How to love well. What we see is an example in this particular narrative. What we see here is we see someone with tremendous power give up a huge part of it. The part that would lead to the harm of another person. Did you catch that? Boaz gives up the power he has that would have led to the harm of another person. And he retains the power that goes towards taking care of them. In this particular conversation between these women towards Naomi, that is what they're wrestling with. What is, what is Boaz famous for? Taking really good care of Ruth. Taking really good care of Naomi. Redeeming, doing his part. But he's not famous for taking advantage of Ruth or lording it over Ruth or taking control of the situation in the kind of way where he has to be the one at the center of everything. What is Ruth famous for? For being the person who defies the power structure and demonstrates this is the way it's supposed to go. This is the way humanity is supposed to act towards one another. Sacrificially. Accepting vulnerability taking on vulnerability for the sake of other people, giving up our power and control when we only have a little bit anyway. And we see Boaz retain something good about his position and give it as a gift to people who are quite vulnerable. And this is what these women are wrestling with. This is that struggle. And it isn't clean, it isn't neat, it isn't simple, it's quite complicated. Boaz had a head start because of his mom, I believe. He was processing some of these things about how to respond as it happens, as it comes up, because he's had time to think on it. And yet, as we come to our situations where we are confronted with something difficult, a question we rarely ask and answer is, what privilege and what power do I have that I can give away? What privilege and power do I have that I'm using to harm the person next to me? And then, what we'll do with that. Will we continue on in our privilege and power because it's safer for us? Because we don't want to be vulnerable. Because we don't want to be identified as someone who's vulnerable. 
but we retain the part of our privilege and power that allows us to take really good care of another person, that will use our roles and our wealth, that will use our relationships, that will use the power that God's given us or that we've acquired in life in some cases for the good of the people around us. And none of this is clean cut. It's all quite murky. And yet, I see in the storyline is a tremendous picture of Jesus. When God put flesh and bones on and chose to walk into the human story, he wasn't walking into a clean cut storyline. It was murky. It was convoluted. It was complicated. It wasn't simple. It wasn't a straight line to the cross, get that done, resurrect, and let's go on with life. He navigated a tremendous amount of the kinds of things that you and I navigate. We say that he was all things. He experienced all things of being human. That means he experienced this kind of situation, confronted with people who are broken around him. Dealing with the fact that he is now limited. He's not God. He, as Paul says, took off his humanity. Or took off his godliness and put on humanity. And walked into the human story. He's now limited himself purposefully. He had to deal with that. With hard questions about what we do when we come across other people who are vulnerable. How do we deal with that? How to deal with his own masculinity. We see Jesus repeatedly giving away his position. He's a teaching rabbi and repeatedly define the normal of what it would be to be a teaching rabbi in the first century by walking among broken people, by touching human beings who are untouchable, by including people who, by all definitions, should not be included. Foreigners, people who are poor, women, children, people who are excluded from worship because something that happened to them or something they had no choice over. What we see here in Ruth, in her story, is we see much of the same of what we see in Jesus. We see an individual who's trying to make sense of how broken her world is and trying her best way before seeing Jesus ever emerge on the scene. <clears throat> trying her absolute best to act out her humanity in the kind of way that resembles something that looks more like wholeness, more like goodness, more like love. And we see her do a tremendous job at it. She does such a good job that she attracts the attention of a powerful, wealthy, land-owning male who would mimic her way, who would copy her, who would follow her, who would marry her, he would have a child with her. Now, as the story goes on here, we took a glimpse at this last week, but I want to I take one more look at how this concludes. Pick up your text again in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. The exclamation point at the end of this writing 
is that through the work of these people, some of the most influential and dominant individuals in Israel are the byproduct of how these people acted and responded. Do you realize that if Boaz didn't do what Boaz did, if he didn't copy the way of Ruth, there's a good chance David never would have been born. That's how powerful this last statement is. The history that we all assume to be true and the way it is that David, this massive major king in Israel, second king, amazing guy, who also chuffs it up often. But nonetheless, infamous would not have been on the radar had these people not acted the way they did. Furthermore, what we know comes after David is something even more important. Jesus. Family line. He carries us to the Messiah. To the arrival of the Christ. To the arrival of God in flesh and bones. And we looked at this last week in in the book of Matthew, the way it starts is with the genealogy, starting at Abraham all the way to Jesus. We pointed this out. Two people that are mentioned in Matthew that should not be mentioned. <coughs> Rahab, Boaz's mom. And Ruth, Boaz's wife. In the family line of Jesus. You see what's spoken so clearly through the storyline of Ruth is that we have a person dealing with situations much like our own today. Crummy, broken, difficult situations. We have such a beautiful picture of what it looks like to defy the normals that we're all participating in. The normal power structures. The normal social fabric telling us where we take our cues from. This is how you do it. This is how you do it when you're at this echelon of whatever socioeconomic bracket you're a part of. This is how you do it with whatever gender you identify with. This is how you do it when you have this role, this job, this title, this identity. What we see in Ruth is someone who completely turns it on its head, who says, just because I'm in the social welfare bottom of the barrel doesn't mean I have to act like it. I can participate in the situation I can recognize my own vulnerability. I can even play into it if I have to. But that isn't me. What we see in Ruth is a powerful, strong woman who does her absolute best to take care of the people around her. Tell you what, all the people I know of in the Old Testament, I can't think of one that eclipses her example in the way of Jesus. So I'd like to do to end our time together in the storyline of Ruth. I'm going to ask you to stand up. And from time to time, this is what we do as a church. We speak blessing to one another and over one another. And I know it sounds a bit rare because we don't do this very often in culture. We don't do it very often in our relationships. And yet I think this is a vital part of the way we relate to one another. That we would hope for something better than we have right now among our community. This morning, I'd like to speak a blessing over you and to you. May you be the people who look increasingly like Ruth. May you be people who recognize your own power and your own privilege and give it away at every opportunity. May you be the people 
who change the relationships that God has blessed you with because of your unexpected gifts of love and hospitality and grace. May you be the people who rip the social fabric and make it something else. May you be the people who follow the way of Jesus into the streets, into the neighborhoods, into the relationships, into the business towers, into the coffee shops, into the bars of Portland. May you be the people who look increasingly like Jesus and decreasingly like people who are harmful and hurtful, angry, and scared. May we be the community of Jesus. Amen.